Hello everyone, welcome to our Saturday broadcast, back after many weeks away. So I've just returned from traveling in America. I was in Los Angeles for two weeks. Um, reuniting with old students and new students. It was quite productive for a, a first visit. So we did a 14-day course uh, starting on the 4th of December, which happened to be my 20th anniversary for my ordination as a Buddhist monk. Uh, it was for the 5th of December, which is the king's birthday. But I was ordained on the 4th, and we just happened to start that day. The monk at the monastery asked me that morning, and said, so how long have you been a monk? And I thought for a second, I said, hey, wait a minute, what day is today? I realized it was it was 20 years that morning. Um, but over the two weeks, only a couple of people finished the course. There wasn't a great setup for it, and there was the issue of COVID. And many people were just there to meet me and learn how to practice for the first time. All Thai people. Uh, but they're very keen to have me come back, and some new people I hadn't met have some ideas about things we might do in Los Angeles in the future. So it was a, I would say it was a good visit. Then I spent a couple of weeks with my mother, living in a tent in her backyard in Florida. And we had a New Year's Day meditation, uh, which we've been doing every year, except for last year, the last 2020, we didn't do it. Oh no, 2021, we didn't do it. Last year, we didn't do it. And then I went to a forest near Orlando, and we did a course there for 14 days. Jeff uh, drove down from Canada with Adder, and Chris flew in from California, and that was quite a bit more fruitful with in terms of completing the course. We had, I think, about eight people, six people finished the course, seven people maybe finished the course, and a total of, I think, 16, 13 maybe, 13, 14. I think 16, including the three of us organizing it, something like that. That was quite a good environment for meditation, quite suitable. Someone asked uh, during, during the course near the end, asked, why do you do this? <laughs> why, do, why do you put on these courses? It's a good question, really. 
especially a good question as an outsider, as someone new coming new to it. Do you not don't quite understand why this is happening? The course was entirely free, uh, paid for by the organization. I mean, paid for by many of the meditators themselves, uh, paid for through donations. Um, but we didn't charge the meditators for the course. We don't charge for anything. So then why are we doing it? I mean, I think to some extent teaching meditation comes out of your own practice. And so I think it's an extension of that. Uh, it's always good to be surrounded by people practicing meditation. So teaching is a great way to live as a meditator. As long as you don't get caught up in the idea of being a teacher or teaching, put yourself up to be a teacher. So, today we have come together to continue this training that we have together, practicing to cultivate clarity of mind. Mindfulness is a great wholesomeness. It's the practice which allows us to be here and now without distraction. Mindfulness is this tool that gives the mind the ability to stay present. The issues around being present that keep us from being present are time. When we get caught up in the past and the future, we lose the present moment. And space, when we get caught up in external spaces, thinking about other people, thinking about home or work or family or friends. We lose our presence. Time and space. And the third is reality. So it's possible to be focused on what's here and now, but on a conceptual level. If you look around the room that you're in, there's so many things that are present. You have the computer in front of you, the chair you're sitting on. So all these things are present. But because they require abstract thinking, you have to process the experience of them to create the idea of a chair or a computer or even your own body. They still aren't completely present. There's still uh, some absence 
of attention. To be fully present, you can't just be here and now. You have to also be real. You have to also be focused on what's real. And so mindfulness allows us to do that. It, 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 on a basic level, it keeps us present. It keeps us here and now. Right? Because your focus is on something that's happening now. When you say to yourself, seeing, seeing, or hearing, hearing, the moment that you're hearing it, it, it keeps you present. But the, the other thing it does is it shifts your attention away from concepts, from things, people, places, things, entities, to experiences. So instead of saying something like cup, cup, or chair, chair, you say seeing, when you see the chair, when you see the cup. Focus on the rudimentary, the, the very basic fundamental experience of, of the thing. And it's so simple and it's so direct that your mind becomes very pure. And your, your mind is protected from what we might call impurity, which just means reaction and judgment and distortion of things. Extrapolation, exaggeration reaction and so on so let's spend a little bit of time now maybe well let's just spend a short time because i've been talking already spend about five minutes just meditating together you can start by focusing on your stomach rising and falling when the stomach rises just say to yourself rising falling just being aware of the experience and use the word to remind yourself to, to refocus your attention on the experience. If you feel pain, focus on the pain and say pain, pain. If you're thinking, say thinking, thinking. If you have liking or disliking, drowsiness, distraction, doubt if any of these arise, note them, liking, liking or disliking. Drowsy, distracted, doubting. And when they're gone, just come back to the stomach, rising, falling. Or you can note that you're sitting, just say sitting, sitting.
Okay, so feel free to continue meditating. Keep your eyes closed. Not even feel free. Let's try and dedicate ourselves to continue being mindful. Your participation during this uh, event, this broadcast, is to type questions if you have any. But once you've typed your question, just close your eyes again and be mindful, waiting until your question gets answered. During this time, I'd ask that people don't post anything in the chat that isn't a question, and the moderators will just delete without prejudice unless it's a question, just to keep it tidy. And then once the question period is over, you can go back to posting whatever you like. We do have questions, so I'll get started. I have constant weird body and mind sensations all day, and even worse at night. PT rises as soon as I close my eyes. Nimitas, then samadhi, up and down, uncontrollable, leading to jhanas at night. How to stop this process in sleep? The more I note, the more piti rises, leading to samadhi. I am unable to rest. I only have a few months of very intense practice, and I am scared. It deeply affects my daily life. How to deal with it? Well, I'm not sure if you've read our booklet, but that might be a good place to start. Consider if you're interested, you could do our at-home course. Um, you might not know that the meditation that we teach is a little bit different from a lot of the meditation out there. Mindfulness is not about building up high states of intense calm or so on. It's uh, about seeing our experiences clearly. And so it will help you to be have a better relationship with these experiences. I mean, calling them weird, this is not, I'm not picking on you, but if I were to pick apart what you're saying just to point some things out to you, saying something is weird is is reasonable if it's new, but weird implies a um, inability to cope with impermanence or the unpredictable nature of reality. When you say something is weird, that's a sign that you're starting to see that things are not as you would could predict them because you call something weird. But there's nothing weird about anything. Experiences are experiences. So as you get more flexible, you'll have less of that sort of weird reaction. Um, but on the other hand, weird can also be a word that we use if we're excited about something, excited in a good way with greed and desire and liking, or excited in a bad way with fear, or uh, you mentioned being, being scared. Uh, now those are real. But those aren't caused by the experiences. Those are your reactions to it. And they're totally arbitrary at, at the ultimate level. And if you learn to have a better relationship with your experiences, for example, by saying afraid, afraid, or noting the feeling of what you call piti, um, it, the, the fear will subside, subside and, and won't have a place to come back. Um, Asking how you deal with it, um, just be clear that we're not trying to fix our problems. Um, just trying to see them clearly as experiences. Because if your intention is to fix, then you have some kind of a, a control idea. Uh, the solution is to let go. So, right, when you ask how to stop this process, 
I, I can't give you instructions on how to stop things. Uh, reality is is reality. It's uncontrollable. And trying to be in charge and make things only be the way you want them to be and not be another way is just a cause for more stress and suffering. So rather than trying to control them, what I can help you do is to free yourself from your reactions to them. Right? Life is unpredictable. Some people have terrible experiences through sickness or what have you. So if this is what you have to deal with, it doesn't sound that bad. Uh, comparatively, you're not dying of cancer, right? But nonetheless, you have experiences that it seems that you, you can't uh, avoid. And so rather than trying to avoid what you can't avoid, try and learn to uh, remove your reactions to it, change your your experience of it. Mindfulness will help you. How do you know you are not craving or clinging to the peaceful state or clarity you get after practice? Well, if you have clarity and if you have clarity of mind, you'll be able to see craving. So if you are craving it, then you'll you'll be able to say liking or wanting, wanting. Mindfulness, how, that, that how you, will you know? You'll know because of mindfulness, because of the clarity of mind that you have. Can you elaborate what seeing clearly means? If I have strong feelings for someone, I note feelings, feelings, but I don't get the concept of seeing clearly. Well, feelings isn't probably the best way to note whatever it is you're calling strong feelings. Strong feelings is kind of a euphemism, or it's a an abstraction, uh, no, um, a generalization of what you're experiencing. Um, strong feelings can refer to liking someone. It can refer to disliking someone. It can be referred to stress or or, or so on, uh, fear. Uh, but whatever those strong feelings are. A better practice would be to try and note exactly what you're experiencing. What does seeing clearly mean? Seeing clearly means seeing that uh, having strong feelings, for example, is a cause for stress and suffering. And to see that the thing that you have strong feelings for is not worth having strong feelings for. When you are clearly aware of, when you're, when you're present, when you have this presence here and now and focused on what's really happening, uh, so, so for example, uh, not exactly as you say, but if someone were to say, I have strong feelings, they could have the sense that it is me, these are my feelings, right? And that's not a clear seeing, that's a, an extrapolation of the experience. The exact experience is the arising of an experience of feeling, an experience of liking or disliking. And if you make that shift to see what's really happening, you'll start to see more clearly what is causing you stress and suffering, what is a cause for happiness, and you'll be able to sort that out. You'll see that the things that you cling to are not worth clinging to. You'll see that um, the search for, or, or the the perception of reality as, or, or of things in reality as stable, satisfying, and controllable is, is a, distor a distortion. And that reality both inside of us and in the world around us is unpredictable. Uh, impermanent, unsatisfying, uncontrollable, has no self or doesn't belong to self. Um, I mean, I don't know if that's just 
too much words, but to put simply, it means to be in touch with reality. So when you're able to um, perceive reality as the experiences that it is, rather than being lost in what you think of it and how you feel about it and um, your reactions to it. Right? When, when, when we think of, a, of or when we see something, let's say, uh, our mind doesn't stay at the experience of seeing. It's already, it's immediately caught up in our idea of it. When you eat food, you start to think about the food, how much you like it, or how you might like that this food better. Or um, you, you, we, with everything we experience, when you feel pain, we are lost in our desire to get rid of the pain and wondering what we can do to not have the pain or sickness or that sort of thing. And so we're lost. We're we're distracted from the experience. Mindfulness helps us to just be present with the experience. Sitting meditation, walking meditation. Do we have standing meditation and lying meditation? If yes, any different techniques? No, standing and lying can be done just as you would sitting. Standing is useful if you're drowsy, and lying is useful if you're restless. But the technique would be the same as sitting. Just watch the stomach rising, falling. Should I always be noting while meditating? When I follow the breath, the inhale, space, exhale, space, there's a knowingness of the experience of the breath. Should I note rising, falling? Why? Noting is a mantra. Why, why do we use mantras? It's a, good, it's a better question to ask why do we use mantras, because then you put it in context, an ancient context or worldwide context. So many different spiritual and, and meditative traditions use mantras. It's uh, a commonly accepted and, and used tool in any kind of meditation. Why? Because it cultivates mindfulness. It cultivates a clear and direct and strong, focused awareness of the object. A mantra is a tool that uses that that allows you to focus on an object, and that's what noting is. The problem is we don't use the word mantra, so people don't have the context. They don't understand what we're doing. What we're doing is mantra meditation, which is a very old and respected phenomena, and and for good reason. Words have power. That's not the only way to develop focus and clarity, but it's one of the better ones, maybe the best one. Um, like when we use words in this way, like when you have fire, you say fire, or when you, um, when when you experience when you see something, you say like a spider, you say a spider or something. We we use words with force. When we tell someone we don't like them, we say, I hate you. Right? And it, it has power. It affects the person who's hearing it. Words focus our attention. When I experience anger, even if I noted it and see it clearly, I have the feeling of repressing it and that it will come stronger eventually. What's the difference between noting and repressing?
that's probably I, I can't of course know exactly what you're experiencing but it sounds very much like um, you're interpreting an experience as a feeling of repression repression isn't really a thing you can't repress things because things are experiences and experiences arise and cease they're gone it's not like uh, like a pressure that that you push back down right anger is an experience it arises and it ceases and once it ceases it's not somewhere being repressed it's gone uh, so what you're experiencing is probably with anger especially the uh, unpleasant result of having been angry because anger has has physical and mental effects it hurts you physically it makes you sick uh, if you're very angry, angry, it makes you very sick. But when you're mindful, you'll see this. You'll see the headaches it causes, the tension in the body, the heat, the discomfort that it causes. That's the result of anger. That's not the result of noting. The result of noting using a mantra is the focus and the clarity that allows you to see that. So you should focus on that feeling. You're you're probably you're most likely misattributing the cause of the feeling. There's no such thing as repressing, really. There's uh, reacting. So you can react in such a way that causes the anger to go away, but that can have bad uh, effects in many different ways. It, it uh, becomes reactionary. So you have this new habit of reaction, and because it's based on trying to control, trying to avoid, it actually incre can increase aversion, right? it can increase ego and sense of control and self and being a master of, of reality, which is just delusion. If I'm able to focus on my breath while doing everyday chores, is this okay? Or should I focus on other bodily sensations? That's fine. Whatever you can focus on. I mean... I'm not sure what you mean by focusing on your breath, but in this tradition we focus on our experiences. So if you have an experience of feeling in the chest or in the stomach, you would note that as feeling or the stomach rising. You can say rising, which is just the same as noting the feeling. I'm in a constant state of emotional pain in my heart that has been in almost a static way for decades. Would Vipassana give me an insight or possible catharsis? Uh, Vipassana would help you let go of the reactions to your experiences. So emotional pain in your heart, I'm not quite sure what exactly you're you're talking about there it's probably more complex than just an emotional pain in your heart there's probably thoughts and memories and um, physical feelings that create disliking or sadness or something and so you want to be a little more um, specific detailed in in what exactly you're talking about to focus on the actual experiences don't call something calling something like a state of emotional pain in your heart is misleading because yes that's the sort of thing that can be there for years but the actual experiences the actual realities they arise and cease momentarily and mindfulness will help you to see that will help you to see clearly which is what the word vipassana means 
and through seeing clearly you'd have a better relationship to it and it would deconstruct all of the bad habits because you'd see them as bad habits as unpleasant and a cause of stress and suffering can we continue to live a peaceful life like a monk as ordinary people in this material world by practicing mindfulness probably not a peaceful life like a monk that's um well not most people you'd have to have a fairly special uh, living situation to be able to live as peaceful as a monk can not that all monks do live peaceful lives but there's a much greater potential for it um, but you can live a much more peaceful life and you can live a perfectly valid peaceful buddhist life as a lay person doesn't mean you have to be a monk to practice properly it just means there is a certain amount of i mean there's a certain peacefulness that is hard if if not well hard to find as a lay person it, I, I guess the best advice is probably not to focus too much on that peace um, or the peace of a monk for example and to focus more on the the peace that you can find in your life one thing about practicing mindfulness is that it does often change your life your lifestyle changes as you continue to practice mindfulness so you're less inclined to engaging in practices that stress you out or get you caught up in things that involve stress so your life slowly slowly becomes more peaceful which often leads to people to think about ordaining as a monk as the next reasonable step are having worldly desires and meditation at odds with each other yes i mean if if by meditation you mean the you mean the meditation that I teach? Uh, what we teach is is mindfulness, and it's not quite so much as they're at odds with each other. It's that mindfulness will show you that your worldly desires are an, a, a bad idea. They're they're an unwarranted uh, mental activity. You'll see the stress and suffering caused by them, and so you'll slowly, slowly reduce and let go of your worldly desires the more mindfulness you practice and likewise the more you engage in worldly desires the harder it is to be mindful is there a difference between single point or object meditation and awareness or mindfulness meditation well, by single point, people usually mean a single object, and so that's the real difference. Um, well, another difference is that the single object is pretty much always a conceptual object because you can't focus on ultimate reality for more than the moment that it exists. Ultimate reality doesn't persist. It's momentary. So if you want to focus on a single object, it better be conceptual. Because it's conceptual, you can't see impermanent suffering and non-self. You won't see the nature of reality. It won't help you. It won't challenge you. It won't help you deal with hardship and, and stress and suffering and struggling. Um, it won't lead to enlightenment. Uh, mindfulness meditation 
on the other hand, focuses on ultimate reality, so it can never take a single object. It takes momentary objects. And because of that, it's not as pleasant or peaceful all the time, not necessarily. Uh, but it, it also, allow, it, on the other hand, allows you to see impermanent suffering and non-self. It allows you to let go of your conceptions of things as stable, satisfying, and controllable, to see that reality is not like that, and to let go and be free from attachment, clinging, and suffering. Why do you separate the mindfulness and samatha practice when from what I have read from the suttas, the Buddha keeps mentioning jhanas as a result of mindfulness? Well, because the word jhana means many different things. Jhana just means meditation. Now, the Buddha talked about four jhanas usually, but that's just four different levels of focus, of purity of mind. And those levels of purity can come from different ways. They can come from what we call samatha, which is practice focused on a concept. And if they do come from that, then that uh, the, that cannot result directly in freedom from suffering or enlightenment. What we practice is not just mindfulness. Now, that samatha practice also includes mindfulness. What we practice is so not quite accurate when, when I say it's mindfulness, because all meditation requires mindfulness. Uh, but what we call that's why we call it satipatthana vipassana because it's mindfulness or it's seeing clearly based on uh, mindfulness so using mindfulness to see clearly which implies focusing not on a single conceptual object like samatha does but focusing on momentary ultimate realities which vipassana does so both both but both lead to, to what you might call jhana it just depends what you mean by the word jhana. Oh, no, it doesn't depend. It depends what the context is, because jhana is still the same. It still involves those qualities of the first jhana, the second jhana, the third jhana, the fourth jhana. That's why the commentaries talk about two kinds of jhana. One is called aramanupani jhana, and the other is called lakanupani jhana. I experience a blank mind, where I feel my mind goes silent and I can't think. I have a feeling this is due to detachment from reality and not meditation. Will meditation over time fix this? Well, try and use the mindfulness practice to note that that feeling of detachment. Note that you feel calm or note that you feel quiet. And just note quiet, quiet, or calm, calm. Um, I mean, it's not an issue. It's just something that might come up from time to time. Try and whenever you can use the practice to be mindful, mindful to just see clearly your experience. It's a common thing for people to feel that quiet. Not everyone does, but many just say to yourself, quiet, quiet.
How can mindfulness help with the sluggish sense of laziness? I find myself not motivated to do anything. So what causes, triggers the motivation to arise, the energy to work, practice, cook, and clean? Well, mindfulness can. Mindfulness helps you um, see clearly, even in your daily even in the room around you, you'll find when you're mindful, it's hard to uh, live in a, a dirty, uh, unorganized environment. You'll find your, yourself naturally inclining to do what needs to be done. You'll find yourself inclining away from busyness, getting too caught up in uh, work, for example. So you, don't, you, you won't be fussy or fastidious, but you'll be reasonable and you'll cook because you have to cook. A lot of the reasons why we don't do the things we need to do is unwholesome qualities of mind. So it can be aversion, it can be uh, greed or the, the pleasure, that the liking of the pleasure that we get from being lazy and so on. And when you're able to work through that and be more at peace, uh, regardless of what you experience, it's much easier to do what needs to be done just by seeing that it needs to be done and doing it without the mind complaining. A sluggish sense of laziness is probably compound. There's the sluggish feelings, but then there's also the pleasure and the liking of, of the lazing around, for example. And there's the fear and aversion of having to do work and so on. So it's more complicated than just the sluggishness. Sluggishness is one thing, but the other qualities of mind are probably more the problem. You don't need energy. You just need to remove the obstacles, the aversion and so on. When practicing throughout the day, I remember my father, and my chest contracts, and I feel sad. Often I note it, even between breaths, and then continue noting the next arising. Is it skillful or suppression? Well, once you've noted, yes, just start with the next arising. But don't note, try and note it between breaths. Don't just note it and then ignore it. Stay with it until it goes away. Put aside the stomach. When you feel sad, say sad, sad until the sadness goes away, or note the feeling in the chest until that feeling goes away. Don't try to fit things in between the breath, just briefly. Note them, stay with them. Instead of meditating on the risings and fallings, I meditate on either the Lord Buddha and or Master Yuttadhamma and his voice of preaching the Dhamma. Is that okay? I mean, I'm, I'm not going to scold you for it. So don't worry, I'll be okay if you do that. I don't mind. But it's not what we teach. I, it's not what I would recommend. Um, the only way you could meditate on someone's voice is if you note hearing, hearing. So again, you're sort of dealing with the difference between Samatha, which focuses on concepts, and Vipassana, which focuses on reality. So I would recommend to focus on reality. But 
I'm not going to tell you what's okay or not. I'll tell you what I recommend. I recommend if you haven't read our booklet, read that. And if you're interested, uh, you could do our at-home course. Can we chant mantras like Om Mani Padme Hung Om Ami Dewahri like at any time of the day? Is there any kind of other restrictions while chanting mantras? Again, I don't teach that sort of thing, so I have no restrictions, but no guidelines for it either. I mean, I, I have really nothing to say on that. It's not what I teach. That's not uh, mindfulness-based vipassana. So you'll have to find a teacher that teaches those things. But I don't recommend that practice. I recommend instead what we teach. So if you're interested, again, you could read our booklet and sign up for an at-home course and see what we do, see if that's interesting to you. Does awareness of the breath fall under single-point meditation that does not aid one on the path to enlightenment? Is mindfulness a better meditation? Mindfulness of breath can be either samatha or vipassana, depending on what your focus is. If your focus is on breath as an idea, as a concept, then it's samatha. If your focus is on the experience of the breath, not actually as breath, but as the experience, the feeling, of the four elements, heat at the nose, pressure in the chest, pressure in the stomach, then it's vipassana. So samatha does still aid in enlightenment, but it's not a direct path. You need to, to continue on with vipassana afterwards. Um, and, and again, no matter what meditation you practice, mindfulness is the quality that allows you to stay present with the objects, whether it's samatha or vipassana, it still in involves mindfulness. It's just satipatthana vipassana, or, or you could just simply say vipassana meditation, which involves the practice of the satipatthana, is, uh, I, I think you could objectively say better, but it's not quite so simple. Explaining the practice, it's clear what is body, feelings, emotions, and thoughts. It's less clear how to explain the fourth, tamas. It seems those are other exercises. How to explain it simply? Yeah, I have always struggled with this one, and the the accepted translation is, is probably the worst translation they could have chosen, mind objects, because it absolutely, I, I cannot abide by the idea that it means mind objects. Um, it's a bit of a technical reason, but um, mind objects is just a very, very specific usage of the word Dhamma that absolutely doesn't fit uh, the context. So as you've, you've seen, it's not just exercises. Exercises is probably not, not the right word. Remember, Dhamma means two things, basically. One, the teaching of the Buddha, and two, reality. And the thing is, those two meanings are almost synonymous, because what did the Buddha teach? He taught reality. So whether it's Dhamma as the things the Buddha taught or Dhamma as reality, it's still just one thing. And so these are the teachings about reality, and they're um, specifically teachings about reality that relate to the practice. So they are teachable realities. Um, 
kind of like a curriculum so they're showing a bit of a progression and they are um, teachings and realities that are a part of the uh, practice of, of mindfulness meditation so again i don't have a really good translation or even definition but having that general sense that they are um, sort of like landmarks or or frame a framework for the practice because they're not exercises necessarily they're qualities of mind some of them they're um, outlines of reality like the five aggregates and the six senses um then then there's the hindrances so these are like the the framework of your curriculum there's it's different from the other three you could say that the first three are the basic practice but then the rest are the tools or or not no they're the theory or the um groups of things that relate to your practice in different ways like the seven bojangas as being um under the the ultimate thing to be developed and the eightfold noble path is or the, the four noble truths being the the um the the final realization so it kind of gives a progression starting with the hindrances which is the beginning when your your mind is not focused how to go through tough times Well, there's no such thing as tough times, uh, and 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 that may sound trite or kind of dismissive, and I don't want it to be dismissive. What I want to point out with that is that calling something tough times is again this kind of making something vague. It's a um, a vaguing, you know. It's a making making vague, however that whatever the word for that is, um, rather than making something more precise and accurate it's 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 kind of too vague to actually help you and and because it's general and referring to time like a time a time span or multiple time spans um it's not something you can fix either it's not something you can work on so the focus on this and the kind of narrative that we give ourselves that these are tough times it, it um because it creates an entity as a a a period of time it's not something you can actually fix, or it's not something actually you can actually tackle. Rather than calling something tough times, try and look at exactly what's happening, and don't ever try and give it a name like this is tough times. Um, and this isn't critical of you. This is just helping to point out because this is a part of the process of being mindful, is of seeing what's actually happening. And if you stay on that level of seeing what's actually happening, you'll see that there aren't actually problems. There are only causes and effects, and some of the causes lead to good effects, some of the causes lead to bad effects. And when you see it like that, when you see it clearly, then you start to give up the bad causes. And when you see that the real cause for suffering is not your experiences, it's your reactions to them, your interactions with them, your way of interacting with them. So I'd recommend, if you're interested in learning how to do all that, um, read our have a read of our booklet and uh, maybe do the at-home course. If you've done all that, for any of you who I say this to and you've already done it, well, try and go over it and try and figure out 
um, uh, sort of get a better perspective on it and try and understand this this shift that needs to take place where you stop looking at the overarching issue and start looking at the details of what's actually happening, the moments of experience. When I am really concentrating on watching a movie that I like, is that a form of mindfulness? No. It's a form of concentration, just like you can be concentrated when you're robbing a bank or killing someone. You can be very focused in, in very evil ways. Mindfulness it doesn't allow that. Mindfulness is the proper grasp of an experience, and it's wholesome can't be associated with liking. Liking is unwholesome, unfortunately. What are some good books to read on the topic? I've been studying the Dhammapada for about a year now. I'm not sure the Dhammapada is really a great introduction to Buddhism. I know it's what people like because they expect it to be this, uh, like one of those little books you buy at a, at a bookstore that you can just flip through one saying a day, but the Dhammapada is not that great for it. Um, I would say things like the Majjhima Nikaya, probably the Majjhima Nikaya is the best introduction to Buddhism. Middle-length middle length discourses of the Buddha. Uh, and then, you know, there's books by, by teachers that, that came after the Buddha followers. There's the Visuddhimagga, which is just huge. I would recommend books by Mahasi Sayadaw. He uh, was a great uh, author and meditation teacher who lived in Burma. Are there arahants in this age? Can Dhamma practitioners still become arahant in today's world? Anyone can become an arahant if they practice the Dhamma properly. It's not about time or place, it's about the individual person. And that is pachatang, people will know for themselves. So it, it, it's not about day or age. Even when there's no Buddha around, there's something called a pacheka Buddha, where someone becomes enlightened on their own without a teacher. And they're an arahant as well, but they're also a, a type of Buddha because they've done it on their own. And uh, that's when there's nobody else around to teach. So it's always possible. Just very, very, very much depends on the individual and their circumstances. When my little sisters are at home, they often fight and are very loud. So I usually meditate when they are not at home. But this person's asking for advice. Well, there's nothing wrong with just noting hearing, hearing, and noting all your thoughts that come up and liking and disliking. When you're processing what they say, you can just say thinking or hearing, knowing, for example. There's nothing wrong with that. Don't be discouraged by having to, having to do that. It's a valid practice to try and be mindful even when you're processing what other people are saying and when you're processing sound. Sound, of course, is not a big problem. Note the disliking, note the reactions. It's good practice.
very interesting and useful. Helps you to see more clearly about how your mind works. Do nimittas fall under the tama category? Yes, nimittas are seeing. So seeing falls under the dhamma, fourth one, six senses. We are always aware. What is the difference between awareness and meditation and awareness and waking life? Well, it depends what you mean by aware. In one sense, yes, of course, we're always aware as long as we're awake, right? But we're not aware in, in, in another sense. We're not aware of the um, results of our actions, the results of our reactions. We're not aware of the nature of reality. And so mindfulness is that strengthening of our awareness. Mindfulness is a quality of grasping the object, like really grabbing a hold of it, seeing it very clearly and, and with strength, uh, like facing the object without flinching. And so noting is what allows, the, the mantra is what allows us to face and not flinch. So there's much we're not aware of as uh, because of our hindrances, our defilements of mind, that mindfulness helps to break through and clear up. How do we progress in the rupa jhanas? Are we meant to stay fixed on one particular jhana until we master it? Well, through the practice of mindfulness, as you continue to practice mindfulness, your mind will become more and more pure until you get to what you might call the fourth jhana of equanimity, where you, everything you look at, there's no liking or disliking, there's no judgment whatsoever, the hindrances are gone. And if that's focused on reality, then as a result of that clarity, then there is freedom from suffering. There is the cessation where the mind lets go completely. When the aversion for a task seems unbearable, I find the courage, like resolute war attitude, being more effective than just mindfulness. Why is that? Maybe I have misinterpreted what mindfulness is. Yeah, I mean, it won't be, it will be more effective at certain things than mindfulness, but that that's because, A, it's not the point of mindfulness to uh, encourage our ambitions, uh, and B, because most likely your mindfulness is not strong enough to effectively um, prevent or, or dispel aversion. When you truly practice mindfulness, aversion can't arise. But until you've trained in mindfulness, you're not going to be very successful. But that, that's only part of it. The other part is that um, we, we often th we think of mindfulness as something that's going to fix our problems. And so we're discouraged when it doesn't, when we see that Instead of controlling our anger, mindfulness seems to just let it run wild. And that's the truth. Mindfulness does let your emotions and everything run wild. It helps you see how wild they are. Because it's that seeing again and again that how wild they are that um, causes you to lose your in excitement for them, your attachment to them. 
you become weary of them, you become tired of them, uh, you become disinclined towards them. But there are, there are other wholesome qualities that are useful, like determination. Determination is, a, is one of the ten perfections of mind that the Buddha developed. And so to that extent, when you talk about determination, it's separate and it's effective for things like that. How many lifetimes does it take to attain the jhana for the average person? I don't know what you'd mean by average person. I don't think there is such a thing as an average person. I'm not really sure about this question because what does it matter? Um, well, I mean, I guess it could, it would be interesting if you could somehow say such a thing and you think, well, what am I compared to this so-called average person? But I think it's a lot more complicated than that. Uh, first of all, like, what do you mean by jhana? Or what sort of practice are you thinking of of cultivating to cultivate the jhanas? Because, you know, depending what you mean, in a few days, well, in in a, uh, less than a month, people uh, attain what you might call jhanas. But depending on what you mean, it can take months or, or years. If you're dedicated, it shouldn't take nearly that long, no matter what kind of jhana you're thinking of, no matter what kind of practice you're thinking of using to cultivate jhana. It's more about dedication. It's not so much about the average person. Are you dedicated to it? Do you have a good practice? Do you have a good teacher? Do you have a good environment? Do you have the requisite um, past good karma to allow you to practice? Are there obstructions, obstacles? Lots of variables. Bhante, that's all the questions we're prepared to ask today. We've crossed the hour. Thank you all. We didn't. Get, if we didn't get to all the questions, you're welcome to come back and um, ask again. I didn't mention, but something that um, we've made clear before is that we're prioritizing questions related to practice, related to our practice, uh, and and especially questions where it appears that the person asking could really use an answer, where the the answer could be very beneficial to that person, not just asking out of curiosity or philosophy or intellect, intellectual stimulation, uh, but something that actually appears to be something the person needs an answer for. And most especially, again, related to the practice that we do. If you're not familiar with the practice that we do, again, I can't uh, stress enough. Try, uh, if you have a chance, read our booklet. Uh, you're interested we have an at-home meditation course it's all free we don't charge for anything ever so don't be afraid to try it out thank you all for coming great great turnout 92 people uh coming to listen without even actually without any actual video uh, you know some people i think want the video to be able to see a, a picture of a person talking but that's not what this is about and this isn't about focusing on a person. And, and I'm purposefully, for no other reason, 
turned off my camera because I don't want it to be a focus on a person. This is a focus on the, the teaching and guidance and giving hopefully good answers to good questions. So thank you all for coming. Wish you all peace, happiness, and freedom from suffering. Sadhu. And thank you, Rahid and uh, Jim, right? Jim, Rahid, and Chris for your help. Have a good week, everyone.